Welcome to the podcast of Hemisphere, the official journal of the European Hematology Association. Hemisphere's podcast presents insightful, expert discussions about recent hematology publications. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. My name is Stephen Hibbs and I'm a hematologist and clinical research fellow based at Queen Mary University of London and I'm one of the scientific editors for Hemisphere. So today I'm joined by Francesca Fioretta and Helen Papadaki, hematologists based in Italy and Crete respectively. And they're the first and last author on the European guidelines on diagnosis and management of neutropenia in adults and children, published in April in Hemisphere. So today we're gonna to hear about them, about the story of this guideline, current practices in neutropenia workup and where there's significant variation. We're gonna hear about neutropenia in people with dark one polymorphisms and how we approach that, areas of controversy, and finally, where they see the greatest potential for future research. So thank you both so much for joining me today. Perhaps I'm gonna start um, off by asking Francesca this question. Um, could you tell me a bit about where the story of this guideline started? Um, how did it first get going? How did you get involved? And how long did it take to reach the finished piece? Okay, good morning, good evening, everybody. My name is Francesca Fioredda and I am a pediatric oncologist and hematologist in Italy, Giannina Gaslini Institution, and I've been involved in neutropenia since 2000. The project is a great idea of a joint venture between the project, an European project in Ocron with the AHA. And the, the real, the true engine of this project is Helen, my dear friend. And together we um, planned to try to, to write something that everybody knows or does not know, but uh, uh, that uh, would argue to have written. And so it began at the beginning of 2021 and it lasted uh, almost two years. And um, can I ask sort of along the way, perhaps I'd, I'll ask this to Helen first, along the way of this kind of two year process, was there anything that surprised you from that initial starting out to the finished piece? Yeah, actually, yes. Um, I think that uh, during this uh, two years journey, I, 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 although I, I am really focused on neutropenias many years now, I realized that I learned how to better um, investigate these patients, and I really enjoyed uh, the collaboration with the pediatricians. I am actually treat uh, adults, and I always had uh, in my mind that, that uh, concept that, you know, neutropenia in adults, for example, is um, a matter of acquired uh, neutropenia. However, across long, during this um, uh, long way, I realized that this is not the case. I have learned how to better use some um, diagnostic tools such as the uh, genetic testing and molecular testing. And I realized that you can diagnose patients with genetically uh, based neutropenia in adulthood. So uh, I really, uh, and I, I also learned how to better appreciate the familial, the family history uh, for example, traditionally, when we see patients with neutropenia in adulthood, we always ask, well, when did it start? And do you have any other family members to have neutropenia? And if they, they say no, we go further. However, I learned that it is very important to insist on the family history 
and ask if you have other uh, other members in the family with infections, with early death, with miscarriages, etc. So I actually, uh, to summarize, um, I enjoyed this interaction with the pediatricians, a pediatric hematologist, and I now have learned how to better diagnose patients with congenital neutropenias that present in adulthood. And I think vice versa. I think that also pediatricians learn how to diagnose children with acquired neutropenias. If I can add, it, it, is, it was really a challenge to try to put together the different expertise in the field of pediatrics and hematology of adulthood, but it was a great richness to have found a kind of communication that it is not so easy with the, all, all the people that you have uh, uh, meet uh, on your on, on your way, but uh, with Alan was possible, and it, it was uh, really possible to exchange, for example, for us for a pediatrician, how uh, to, to catch some element they may be useful to manage the patient that grown grown up, and uh, uh, how to manage the disease in adult age, and so this is uh, really. Um, an important thing. My previous experience uh, was in the field in pediatrics in neutropenia in the Italian guidelines, but at that time uh, we were only pediatrician, and this is was something new for me and for us. And really... It's interesting, isn't it, how these things often happen in silos, and you get you get kind of patches of expertise, but the the groups kind of almost have these two completely. Well, they're not completely different, but they're, they're quite different practices. And then suddenly you bring together, you think, oh, hang on a minute. Like, actually, there's quite a lot that you're doing that, that makes sense in my context, too. And that's that's really inspiring to hear, actually. It is uh, really dependent on how you want to be open minded, because it is not always possible. Mm. Uh, OK. <laughs> so I'd be interested to know, you made, made a lot of recommendations within the guidelines and you mentioned that there's there's a lot of variation between clinical practice in in different regions between different different clinicians is there anything in particular or, or a few things that jump out as the things you think most need to be standardized to improve patient care in the workup and, and management of neutropenia what we realized because we worked um, as a group of experts however uh, before that, we had a very broad collaboration within, within this cost action, the unit inocron action, where we had the chance to collaborate with pediatricians, with um, uh, hematologists from different uh, parts of uh, Europe and beyond. And, you know, there we, we realized that uh, although we were, um, uh, let's say, uh, people that are focused on neutropenias, However, we have absolutely different approaches in different areas. And you know, this depends on what kind of uh, diagnostic tools you have available, uh, what are the local practices, what, are, what is the experience of the, of the physicians. So uh, we had this, um, um, uh, this kind um, of collaboration with uh, other people. And we realize that, uh, you know, uh, what we think as a standard, you know, in uh, specialized uh, centers, it's not the case in, in other parts of the world. For example, the genetic testing, which is so 
um, so important, not only for the diagnosis of specific types of uh, neutropenias, but also to have a, 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 a very um, follow-up, uh, the appropriate follow-up in these patients is not the case in many parts of uh, Europe. So, of course, we, we need to have a more widely available genetic testing in as many countries as possible. Another issue is um, the anti-neutrophil antibody testing, which is uh, very important to characterize some types of neutropenias, the autoimmune neutropenias, which are very uh, common in children, but also they can be found in adults. However, you know that the test for anti-neutrophil antibody is so difficult to be standardized. So we have to, to make available the genetic testing. We have to make, you know, more friendly use the anti-neutrophil antibody testing. And of course, we, we have other needs such as the better diagnosis of some telomeropathies, uh, which uh, may be the case in not only in children and adults. So these are some examples that how some very important tests are not widely available and how uh, they, there, is a, there is actually a need to, to make them available and, uh, um, you know, widely used. Yes, thank you, Helen. Francesca, is there anything yes. else? Yes, uh, I think that uh, the point raises uh, from Helena are right. Uh, the tools, for example, that everybody of us have uh, in order to, to, to face the diagnosis is very important. Not, not all the countries uh, have the tools to, uh, to manage diagnosis of neutropenia. So we tried also to start with the uh, minimal effort, minimal tools to try to have diagnosis of these disorders. And uh, another another idea is that uh, any of us uh, probably started from different point, but uh, we tried in any way to overcome the differences and the obstacles in order to, to, to reach a consensus. And if I can say that the phases of consensus were, were not so easy for this reason, uh, because we needed the time to explain our our um, methods our reason and at the end we catch some useful things from one to others so uh, the process was not so smooth at the beginning but uh, at the end we were able to to reach some consensus also on uh, um, on some tools for example genetics that may be available in one country more, more easily and in another country less easily and so on, but it, it it was at the end quite useful for everybody, I think. Thank you. Yeah, and and we'll we'll explore about the sort of um, consensus and where there's still some controversy, perhaps in in, in a little bit. I just um, want to move on to another area first, which is about uh, patients who have um, dark one polymorphism. So so the um, Duffy, what is it, Duffy antigen um, receptor for chemokines uh, one polymorphisms, which, as I understand it is the main reasons why a lot of people who are of black African heritage or um, some people um, from uh, Arab heritage or a few other ethnicities um, have lower uh, circulating neutrophil counts than, than others and, and why the reference ranges may not make sense for all populations. Um, this seems to be a really important area to get some clarity on. And I just wonder, how did you approach that in the guideline? And what work do you think needs to be done to, to really have, have neutral, 
approach to neutropenia that makes sense for patients with this polymorphism? You know, it's not, yes, that this taffy antigen uh, polymorphism um, results in, um, let's say, a kind of neutropenia that used to be um, called ethnic neutropenia. However, we have avoided to use this term in order not to, you know, to characterize uh, this uh, variation based on the ethnic variations. Uh, but uh, we tried to introduce a new term, which is ADAN, which means uh, um, uh, ADC, which is the gene, dark associated neutropenia. So to be focused on um, on the polymorphism, which, as you said, uh, is very common in some parts of the world. However, we have uh, realized that um, this uh, type of neutropenia may be also found in not the traditional uh, parts of the world, but can be also uh, found in Europe, for example. And this is reasonable because, you know, people are moving around and uh, also, you know, uh, marry, marry between, we have marriages between uh, people. For example, we have identified this type of neutropenia in our cohort of patients in Greece. And uh, we have a cohort of um, neutropenia patients, not only from Greece, but also from Balkan countries. And we have identified 5% of the population, which are not traditionally originate from Africa or Middle East, but are Europeans that present this polymorphism. So what we have um, introduced in these uh, guidelines is that uh, we have to insist on investigating, on exploring the, the presence of this uh, polymorphism. And if we do not have access to the genetic test, which is very simple because you just uh, perform a PCR analysis to identify the polymorphism. But if you cannot do that, at least you can make uh, the phenotype of the red blood cells and ident identify these daphnal phenotypes, which are uh, you know, associated with this type of neutropenia. So it's not actually the limit of the neutrophils that makes you to, to have the suspicion of this type of neutropenia and just perform the phenotype and, of course, if you can, the genotype to identify this polymorphism. Can I ask um, then, if you did do that and you found someone had the polymorphism, what would be your next steps? Because I guess that, um, do we, yeah, do we have reference ranges yet? Do we have ways that we can approach that? Or, um, yeah, how would, if we don't have them, how do you approach someone who's got a low neutral count? But is it because of the polymorphism or is it too low for that? That Those are the sort of questions that I think um, people perhaps often grapple with. This topic is quite intriguing because uh, uh, this uh, uh, characteristic uh, found on the red blood cell and uh, the, the link with neutropenia is uh, important in order to define a disorder or a non-disorder. So uh, the risk is uh, to uh, medicalize uh, a lot, for example, children or even adults that carry this this type of uh, of, uh, of a characteristic. And uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the goal, even of, of the guideline, was trying to lighten as much as possible the controls of in mm -hmm. in, in person in which uh, in who are not uh, really needed. All this stuff, and also the consideration of the threshold of the neutrophils probably will change it in, as considering, for example, patient treat, 
been treating with the chemotherapy or some or, or other kind of treatment. And so it, it, it is really intriguing and surely we'll need the more more step forward in order to identify uh, what kind of patient are uh, the carrier of this characteristic? Also, in uh, in uh, we are going to observe that a number of Caucasian uh, are the final in, in, uh, according to the characteristic, and so um, I think we we must deepen and enlarge the cohort in order to have a better idea on how how uh, uh, of the how, how it works and how we can manage all these things. Helen, is, is there anything else you'd say about your approach to patients who've got a, um, a polymorphism of, of, of the dark gene? Yes, we actually relax, let's say relax, when we identified such patients because there is no need uh, uh, to proceed further to have, you know, the bone marrow aspiration, etc. which, well, it's not uh, a pleasant uh, exam to perform. Of course, we have a, a follow-up in these patients, particularly if the white blood cell counts are lower than those that you expect in such types of neutropenia. However, at least you not you do not need to perform you know this uh, exhausted um, uh, investigation um, that you have when you perform when you have this um, um, otherwise identified neutropenias. And just sticking with you for a moment, Helena, um, Francesca spoke a little bit to this point, but um, just interested to, to hear about where there were areas of that were harder to find agreement of in this process, because your your guideline process, I think you needed 75 percent consensus to agree on a um, on a recommendation. Were there any areas that you just couldn't find agreement on and you had to sort of set aside uh, as a recommendation or were there others that it was quite difficult to reach a consensus because of, of differences in opinion within within the writers. You know, it was uh, so nice. Uh, it was a so nice procedure because it's not. It was not easy because in all topics, in, in all um, in all uh, recommendations, we had uh, many many rounds of of discussions. And of course, there were some areas such as, uh, for example, uh, what are the levels of investigation that, what type of investigation should be included in each level of investigation because, because we have the first approach, the second approach, and then you perform the bone marrow, et cetera. So yes, given that we have, ch we have children and adults and we had decided that both should be included in these guidelines, uh, we have um, many rounds in in this particular area, which should be uh, the um, uh, investigation that should be included in each level. Also, um, we discussed a lot about uh, how often we should perform bone marrow aspiration in congenital neutropenia patients that come to the uh, adulthood. Uh, you know, where there you have people that uh, want to get married, you know, they they have their first uh, relationship, etc. And they, they do not want to, you know, to be in touch with their doctor. So this, uh, this particular patients that move from the uh, childhood to the adulthood, and uh, now they live normal because we have, you know, GCSF, etc. Because in the past, these children, you know, they, they, they didn't live a lot because 
because of the infections, etc., because of acute myeloid leukemia, etc. But now these people leave us the rest of the population. So we have these, you know, young adults that uh, uh, need specific approach. Uh, so we, we had this kind of discussion. However, for me, it was the best experience because this, this kind of discussions between uh, people that are experts in, the, in their own field, it was so, you know, deduct, deducted for each of us and so educational, etc., that um, we really enjoyed. And finally, we had a broad consensus in all topics. But we have, of course, we had, of course, many rounds of discussion as well. <laughs> and if I, I can add the the the, the percentage, the lower percentage of consensus were related to news, to something new. For example, I went through the, the percentage and I realized that, for example, the Adam, the, the new definition of the ethnic news opinion was really difficult. To be defined as Adam is now, because probably new way of considering things uh, are, are difficult to be accept, accepted at, at the end. And also, we had a lot of discussion on classification uh, in relationship with the, the uh, these new pro, pro, provisionally acquired, likely acquired neutropenia, uh, which seem promising uh, to. To describe and to connect those neutropenia that's, that rise in infancy and goes on without without remission since adulthood, and so this is really a, an interesting field, and it is also a matter of collaboration with, uh, for me, with the adult uh, world, and. Um, also, I confirm the, 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 the concept of the frequency of controls. It was a matter really uh, of discussion uh, because as pediatrician, uh, we are in a habit to, to, to do more frequently uh, some procedures because sometimes parents ask uh, some uh, uh, some answers. And uh, in adulthood, uh, a neutropenic patient learns how to live, how to manage, and uh, he, he has or she has a lot of uh, uh, things to do and does not uh, have the time or want, doesn't want to have the time to, 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 to check uh, her or his bone marrow. And so it was quite a challenge. <laughs> so final question for you both, and I'll start with Francesca's answer on this one. Um, if you could have a ridiculous amount of money, let's say a billion pound grant, uh, a billion euro grant, um, you could have access to the data um, of every neutropenic patient, uh, adults and children um, around the world. What would be the, the most important uncertainty in this field that um, you would want to answer? So Francesca, I'll start with you on that. I would like, my dream is try to understand what kind of uh, pa neutropenic patients are really neutropenic or not. So I explain sometimes, I believe that uh, some patients without any symptoms are not neutropenic, but their neutrophils are in, in, in some other places other than within the vessels. And I would like very, so much to try to, to, to follow the neutrophils and try to to understand where he's going to need to, to hide. And uh, this is uh, something that would, uh, would help us to consider a, a 
uh, a person with a disease or without a disease. And this is uh, true not only for the ethnicity, but I think for other kind of uh, um, genetic characteristic probably that uh, active or inhib inhibits some, uh, for example, uh, receptors that can uh, allow the neutrophils to go in other places other than the, than the vessels. Thank you. Well, what about you, Helen? I totally agree with Francesca. You know, in neutropenias, um, you count... Uh, you have um, a picture of the of the neutrophils that circulate, and uh, however there are there are neutrophils everywhere in the body. You have neutrophils in the bone marrow. You have neutrophils in the tissues. So we call neutropenic some patients, and they actually they are not ill. They just have their neutrophils somewhere uh, ever, somewhere else in the body. So I totally agree with Francesca, and also for me it's a challenge to. Uh, to in, to further investigate these idiopathic patients as well, because you have the, the patient, you perform a number of, of uh, investigation and exams, and finally you say, well, in sixty percent of these um, uh, of these uh, uh, don't say patients you know, of these uh, people, you do not identify anything. However, if uh, neutropenia is there. So I would like to perform a whole exome uh, analysis in every neutropenia patients because as long as as far and as deep deeper you investigate these patients, you identify um, some you know variations, and then it would be very interesting you know to 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 join uh, data from different databases and to see. Um, uh, or, or if other other people in other labs, other areas, etc., display uh, the same variation that you identify. So the whole exome sequencing for me would be, you know, I would like to perform it in every idiopathic neutropenia patient because I believe that some of these patients have congenital disease that has not been identified. You know, not traditional congenital neutropenias, but some variations that result in, result in the neutropenia. And also another challenge for me is to further investigate this uh, variance of unknown significance that, that we identified in our genetic testing. And it would be very interesting, again, combined data and also to perform functional analysis to identify who, who which of these you know, VUS uh, or variants of unknown significance are, are pathogenic in uh, in these patients. So uh, these are my, you know, um, research dreams and experimental dreams in the field. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you so much, Francesca. Your time and expertise is really valuable and I'm grateful to you both joining us this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you indeed. Thank it you. is a re It was really a pleasure to have this... Uh, uh, dialogue. <laughs> thank you. Thank you both. And thanks to all our listeners um, for listening in. Please do check out the guideline itself, where you can learn a lot more about neutropenia, its management, its definitions, and uh, the uncertainties that remain. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Hemisphere podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. All of Hemisphere's content is open access and can be found at www.hemispherejournal.com. We hope you will join us for future podcast episodes.